0: We're in chapter 18 at the very end of the chapter, just a couple of verses to go. And we're finishing the speech of Rav Shekeh. We got a long 20-verse speech here that Rav Shekeh, that's the name of this apostate Jew who's on the Assyrian side. He's uh, a representative of the Assyrians, speaking to the Jewish people outside the walls of Jerusalem. And he's trying to demoralize the Jewish people, trying to convince the Jews of Judea to give up their struggle against Assyria and agreed to surrender and to submit to the Assyrian program of deportation. And he's telling them that a humane transfer of populations, which is what Assyria does, that's a lot better for you than a long siege outside the walls of Jerusalem where you're going to starve to death and you'll be slaughtered. So accept our program of deportation. And what he's trying to do in this speech we see is to turn the people against their king, Chizkiyahu. Because Chizkiyahu started this whole... Rebellion in the first place, when he refused to pay tribute, he rebelled against the king of Assyria, and that's what brought the king of Assyria to the doorstep of of, of Jerusalem. And Rav Shekeh is saying here in the speech that Chizkiyahu, he's like a religious fanatic. He's out of touch. He's talking about bitachon and munah, all these crazy things. He's not grounded in reality, and it's just reckless. And he's going to take you down with him because the pragmatics are. If you're going to be practical. Assyria will crush Judea in any kind of uh, military confrontation. And then we saw that Rashike uh, continues. He makes like even a religious argument to counter Chizkiyahu's religious conviction. He says that we're a, we're a shalich from God. Assyria is a shoshavit api. That's what it says in the Bible. We're a, we're a stick of Hashem's wrath coming upon Judea to punish it. And we see he's well-versed in the book of Isaiah. He's uh using similar terminology that we see in the prophets and similar phrasing. And that's how the sages came to the conclusion that Rav Shekeh is an apostate Jew, a Jew that knows his Judaism, is one of the tribe, but he left the fold and now he's a big macher uh, in the Assyrian hierarchy. So now um, we're going to continue in his speech, finish the chapter and finish his speech here. We're going to see that Rav Shekeh is going to now take another route. Instead of... Making the God of Israel to be a relevant factor, an important factor. Orchestrating events, sending us to Judea and so forth. Now, he's going to engage in just good old fashioned blasphemy against the God of Israel by grouping the God of Israel with all the other gods with a small G, who weren't able to save their nations. So let's look at verse thirty three here. Have the gods of the nations saved? One, one of them saved his land, Melchashur, from the hand of the king of Assyria. So we don't see any situation where any of these gods were able to save their country from the wrath of the Assyrian armies. And then we give some examples. Ayeluke Hamat. Where are the gods of Hamat? The Arpad. And Arpad, these are uh, the names of nations that were exiled. Where are the gods of the Sepharveim? So those are three nations he just mentioned who actually we saw them in the previous chapter. They were exiled from their lands and dumped into Samaria, if we recall. Those, Those are the nations that were getting killed by the lions. Well, he's saying their gods didn't help them. You know, why should your fate be any different than their fate? And he continues. They were moved around and they were twisted about. And has, they've been, a, have been able to save Samaria from my hand? So now he gives another example, something really close to home, the Shomron, the 10 tribes in Samaria, they weren't safe from my hand. Your fellow Jews weren't able to escape the onslaught of Assyria, you know? And he continues in uh, verse 35. <speaking> in <Hebrew> Give me one God of any land that saved their land from my hand. None amongst the gods were able to do that. Of course, that's a rhetorical question, right? And then he continues, And so can the Lord save Jerusalem from my hand? Just like they weren't able to save their lands. Your Lord can't save Jerusalem. So he's equating the God of Israel to these other gods. And of course, that's where the blasphemy comes in. And that's the point that the chutzpah here of Rav Shekeh, it's really reached a peak because up to now, he's kind of made the God of Israel a very relevant factor in things. Like, you look at verse 22. He's saying that Hashem doesn't want to save you. After all, Chizkiyahu removed the bamot. He removed the altars. And he disrespected Hashem when he, when he removed those altars in that unprecedented move. No other king removed the altars outside Jerusalem. He doesn't let you worship your God. So you can't serve your God. Why should your God help you? And then in verse 25, we saw that he's calling Assyria a shalich, a vehicle of Hashem, he says, has not, has not the Lord sent me? I'm a messenger, right? But now he's taking it the other way and saying that God isn't capable of saving his people and land, God forbid. And if you look at the book of Chronicles, we have Rav Sheke's speech in even more detail recorded. And there he says, And can God save you from my hand? So there he says it just point blank, God can't save you from my hand. And that's a lot of words of blasphemy to to be recorded in, in the scripture because usually uh, the Bible likes to keep things clean. For instance, when Goliath uh, cursed out the God of Israel and cursed out the Jews, he said that he, he did it for 40 days. But the scripture didn't get into the nitty gritty details of what Goliath said. It didn't quote him like they're quoting Rav Shaker over here. We got one verse about Goliath, Uh, when he said, I taunt the armies of Israel. He said that, and he said a lot more, but Scripture didn't bring it. Here, the Bible uh, is getting very explicit, and we're bringing the whole blasphemous spiel of Rav Shekeh. And obviously, it's important to bring it down here to know what the Jews are facing. Okay, so what's going to be the reaction of the Jews? He finished his rant. What's going to happen? So it says like this in verse 36, V'chirishuam, and the people remained silent. So I guess nothing's going to happen. They just remained silent. Lo devar. They didn't answer him one word. Ki mitzvata Why? Because it was an order from the king, Lemor, when he said, Lo tanuhu. He said, don't answer him. So, to their credit, they were following the orders of hiskiahu who said, don't answer him. Why not answer him? Well, first of all, the people shouldn't be answering him. He sent out those negotiators to do the talking. They were sent out to engage in the dialogue with the three Assyrian representatives. Remember in the last chapter? We had the three, we'll see them in the next verse. They're supposed to do that. But even so, what's the point in answering him? You respond to him. I mean, you're not, having, you're not going to change his mind. You get into a dialogue with him. Things escalate, get out of hand. Really better not to react at all. And it's kind of going along what it. it says in Proverbs. It says in Proverbs... The book of Mishle, uh, chapter 26, 4. It says, Which means don't answer the foolish arguments of fools or you will become as foolish as they are. Which is like saying, you know, if a dog barks, don't bark back. So Chizkiyahu was going by this Mishle, not answering the foolish arguments of fools. And what's interesting, though, is that I quoted uh Mishle, Proverbs, chapter 26. If you go to the chapter right before chapter 25, chizkiyahu is mentioned there. It's just like this. The first verse, Gamelu Mishlei Shlomo, these are also the Proverbs of Solomon. Asher Hitiko and Sheikhuda, which the men of Judea and which means either they copied it or compiled it. So there you go, Chizkiyahu. There he is. He's in the book of Uh, Proverbs, Shmishle, and he's obviously drawing from the wisdom of his great-great-grandfather, Solomon, taking the advice, applying it, don't uh, answer the foolish arguments of fools. Okay, so um, we now go to the final verse here. What's going to happen? So the Jewish representatives says like this, Yavoch Eliakim, Ben Chil- So, the first representative, Eliakim, son of Chilkiah, Alabite, he was over the palace, Shevna Sofer, and Shevna the scribe, and Yoach Ben Asapha those three representatives, we saw them at the beginning. They were dispatched by Chisqiah. They come back now, Kruay Begadim, and they came back with torn garments. They, they ripped their garment out of mourning. Obviously, inside the walls of Jerusalem, they didn't do it in front of this apostate but when they got inside the walls, they did Kriah, and they told the all the words of Rav Shekeh. So why would they do kriya? Why would they um, rip their garments? And Again, it's a sign of mourning. Well, when this tragedy, um, that's what Jews do. If you look at the book of uh, Joshua, after the defeat and the war of Ai, that was the war after Jericho where they won, the next war they lost, And Joshua did Korea. He ripped his garment because of the tragic results. And King David as well. When he heard what happened to King Saul and and his sons at the Har Gilboa, the Mount of Gilboa, that, that war against the Philistines where the Jewish people were defeated and their king fell, he did Korea. So when you have a tragedy like this, that's what you do. And there is tragedy looming over them. We're talking about exile and destruction. So they rent their garments. Now, the sages teach us, though, uh, maybe another idea, um, and it's not because of their own tragedy, or well, even the tragedy of Jerusalem going down, but it was the blasphemous words of Rash Shekeh that the great Chilul Hashem that was caused by his words, when this apostate was comparing Hashem to other gods and saying the Lord of Israel doesn't have the power to save you, what we just read in verse 34, 35, well, that's a desecration, of God's name. What in Hebrew is called a Chilul Hashem and Chilul in Hebrew from the word Halal, which means vacuum, that God's name is being emptied from the world. Either he doesn't exist or he's too weak to save his people. That's Chilul Hashem. And in the next chapter, we're going to see that they're going to turn to the leadership and are going to turn to the prophet and pray to Hashem, defend your holy name that's been desecrated here and make Rav Shakeh eat his words, because Chilu Hashem is, uh, you know, at a national level, it's kind of different than we're used to. Maybe we'll get into it again in the next chapter, because we're going to see that's going to be the whole, the the whole gist of the tefillah is going to be, please fix this Chilu Hashem. Because this concept that when the Jewish people are degraded, then Hashem, so to speak, is also considered not real because if he was he wouldn't let this happen to his people that's what it says in uh, the Navi. Shiflutam Yisrael Chilu The humiliation of the Jewish people is it Chilu Hashem is the desecration of God's name and of course the opposite when the Jews are victorious that reflects positively on their on their God who has power to help his people so we'll, again that will be a big subject and it's a basic basic tenet in Judaism that we're going to try to get into in our next chapter in any case uh the speech is over, okay? The chapter's over. And um, what's interesting, though, is like a whole subplot develops. If you look at the Talmud, okay? We'll, we'll know that uh, a whole bunch of stuff is happening and the effect of Rav Shekeh's speech was obviously um, uh, felt by the Jewish people because it says in the Talmud that a fierce argument broke out on whether to surrender or not to Assyria as a result of the speech? Chizkiah, with encouragement from the prophet Isaiah, he refused to surrender. And Shevna, the scribe, okay? That's one of the three representatives. Remember Shevna hasopher. Well, what do you think? He was a scribe who was writing mezuzahs in the palace? He wasn't that kind of scribe, obviously. We're talking about a great rabbi of that generation. That's why he was sent out as a representative. He's a heavy hitter. As a matter of fact, it says in Vayikra Rabbah, that Shevna was a Kohen Gadol. That's vikir, vik, uh, Vayikra Rabba, the Midrash, chapter five, Midrash five, who Kohen Gadol. So he's not just a, a scribe, but writing, you know, tefillin. And so um, let's look at now what it says in the Talmud, um, page 26, Masechet Sanhedrin, Tractate Sanhedrin. It says like this. The Gomorrah opens like this. What does it mean when it says in the, in the verse, in Isaiah, which means that a group of evil people isn't counted. What, is, what are they talking about? So the Gemara says like this, Shevna was a minister in King Chizkiah's court, a prominent figure. He would teach Torah to an audience of 130,000 followers. See, I told you he was a big guy. And Chizkiah would teach Torah to an audience of merely 110,000 followers. When Sanchif came and besieged Jerusalem, Shevna wrote a note and shot it over the wall with an arrow. The note read Shevna and his camp have appeased Sankhriv and are ready to surrender. Chisqiah and his camp have not appeased Sankhriv. And then they bring a verse in Psalms. It says, This is Psalms chapter 11 For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have made ready their arrow upon the string. So the psalmist is relating to Shevna who shot his arrow over the wall into the Assyrian camp. Okay, we continue in the Gomorrah here. Chizkehah was frightened. He said, perhaps, God forbid, it's the opinion of the Almighty to go after the majority. As it says in the Chumash, acharei Rabim Lahatot. That is, it's a verse, it says in, in, in the Bible, in, in the Chumash, it says, you go after the majority. You follow the majority rule. So maybe the, the Almighty follows the majority. And since the majority have submitted to the Assyrians then maybe even those who have not submitted should also submit into their hands. And then the prophet Isaiah comes and says to him, this is the end of the Gemara now, don't worry about it. Kesher ishaim, a nomen that a conglomerate of wicked people or a lot of wicked people together is not counted. So let's... uh." try to figure out what happened here. Let's repeat this uh, or summarize this, Gemara. We got Shevna. He obviously started some kind of religious party, you know, called Shalom Achshav, Surrender Now. And his faction is growing and they're addressing larger larger audiences uh, than Chizkiyahu indicating he's got a majority in favor of surrender. So when Shevna dispatches his note to the enemy and Chizkiyahu, you know, he expressed his doubts because, hey, maybe... Maybe we've got to go by the majority. And and Isaiah comes and says, don't treat a coalition of evil people, or of evildoers, as a coalition. It does not count. That is, even if it is a majority, it has no weight, it has no importance if it's going against the Torah and the prophets. So that's really um, a fascinating subplot to this whole episode of Chizkiyahu and Assyria. And we also glean another lesson, though. Another benefit is we actually learn from all this uh, what is the Jewish view of Western democracy? And we see it doesn't exactly, uh, it's not exactly compatible to Western democracy. Uh, it's not exactly Thomas Jefferson, you know, one man, one vote, but the a concept of a majority rule, that is a concept, you go for the majority, but not of everybody. You of a majority of people who are in the framework of halacha. then you go by a majority within that framework. And so... Uh, You know, because if we believe that the Torah is objective truth, why would we vote on that every four years? It doesn't make that much sense. Uh, So, okay, so we're going to go back, uh, continue our next year. We're going to see what's Chizkiah's next move, and we'll see how this drama unfolds.